Welcome to Neighborly. Triscodecophilia, house number 13, Little Street. There was no house number 13 on Little Street. I know I have mentioned it before, and it was technically the 13th house in this long, grinning row. But if you really want to get nitpicky and fuss around with silly little technicalities, it was actually legally called House 13 and One Ninth. Its mailbox boasted the digits 1 and 3 in shiny brass. But can't you see the very obvious one-ninth painted in bright blood red? Make sure you don't touch it. It's still drying. And we wouldn't want anything out of place. Nothing is out of place here on Little Street. House 13 and one-ninth. Ugh. No, I'm calling it 13. For my sake, for your sake, and for simplicity's sake. Why did they reject simplicity and add the one-ninth? The residents of House 13 were not superstitious, no. They simply painted one-ninth on the mailbox just in case anyone else was superstitious. What a considerate thing to do. House 13 was a house like any other, from a basic essential viewpoint. It had walls and a roof and a chimney. It had rooms and windows and hallways. And it had a lovely little garden boasting a flamboyance of lawn flamingos. The inhabitants of the house were another story. The occupants were few, and the house large, and recent events had caused tensions to rise. It wasn't necessarily one large event that caused all this, but rather a concatenation of smaller ones, a compounding, just like a bone with many hairline fissures might eventually shatter under all this pressure. But I digress. Aaron and his two parents lived in house 13 and one ninth, and they were ordinary people just like you or... just like you. If you saw Aaron, you might notice his black clothes and thick glasses. You might take note of his dark curly hair and black eyeshadow. You might even be so keen as to notice his chipped black nail polish on his left hand. But you wouldn't notice, if I hadn't told you, the way he carried himself, deliberately obscuring his right hand in the pocket of a bag or behind his back. You're wondering why, aren't you? I can practically hear the gears turning in your head. So I suppose I will tell you, indulge your curiosity, I'm merciful like that. The mornings in House 13 are quiet, usually. Roberta gets up first, stretches, gets dressed, and makes herself some buttered toast. Theodore gets up next, shuffling into the kitchen with the dregs of sleep still in his eyes, and hugs his wife while she gets a spoon for her yogurt. The last to get up is Aaron. He gets out of bed quickly, splashes water on his face, cleans his glasses, applies his eyeliner, and cleans his glasses again after accidentally smudging them. After Roberta makes her toast and yogurt, she sits at the kitchen table with a daily newspaper and a pair of shiny silver scissors in hand. She scans the page for suitable material, and she might occasionally snip a word or two out of the paper. She holds the scraps of paper at the corners, as if she fears they'll turn around and bite her, and she places the pieces into an ashtray and sets them ablaze with a matchstick. 
Once she is satisfied that the words and numbers have been turned to ash in front of her, Roberta grabs her briefcase and struts out the door. She likes to have an early start. Theodore, meanwhile, makes his own toast, slathering it with jam and salt. Aaron finds this incredibly strange. But then again, he found a lot of his parents' tastes unusual. Theodore pads into the living room, where he curls up on the old soft armchair, already indented with his body, and begins reading the second-hand newspaper handed down by his wife after she had left. It was sometimes difficult for him to read due to the precise excision of words that Roberta had created with her scissors, but he got most of the gist anyhow. The house had several bookshelves, and Theodore could often be found in the study perusing one of the many books about the local wildlife and mythology, but mostly about superstition. And therein lies the crux of this tale. Theodore and Roberta were incredibly superstitious, to say the least. Aaron did not believe in curses, but if he did, then it certainly would have been a curse most foul that he had a set of interesting parents. He would have been fine if they had just kept their weirdness to themselves, but it was agonizing for him to have to wait for his mother to painstakingly avoid all the cracks on the sidewalk, and she doesn't even have a mother, and his father to pick up every grain of salt from an unluckily spilled salt shaker at dinner. They would erect rope barriers, like in a movie theatre, around any ladders in their house for fear that someone would accidentally, or purposely, in Aaron's case, walk under them. They fervently counted the magpies of Little Street, despairing if they saw the wrong number. Theodore kept a horseshoe in the wall, ends pointed upwards to keep the luck in. Aaron turned it upside down whenever he passed by it. Theodore would notice and flip it correctly, prevent the luck from falling out. They alternated like this constantly, Aaron undoing whatever measures his father had taken to ensure nothing bad would happen. He fancied himself a saboteur, a rebel with a cause, namely, to end his parents' annoying shenanigans. Ugh, why can't they just stop? Aaron fumed. If his parents had to believe in things that weren't real, why couldn't they believe in something cool? Like space pirates, or vampires. Those were cool and definitely not real. To clear his mind, he walked over to his favourite spot on the mezzanine. He stretched his arms, audibly cracking his neck, and straightened his posture. He scooted the piano bench closer to the pristine Steinway. On days like these, he thought it best to drown out his feelings with music. And so he did, softly pressing the D key. Then again, twice more. He continued playing notes in a staccato Fibonacci sequence until he got to 13. Good. Now he could begin playing for real. Aaron was self-taught. He was occasionally slightly sore after playing, nothing a couple of wrist rotations couldn't fix. He sometimes worried he might get carpal tunnel syndrome or a sprained tendon or some other hand injury, but he doubted it. He was always cautious, and besides, didn't that only happen to old people? He shook the idea out of his head, and he ran his hands down the piano again. When he had finished the song, he pushed up his glasses and wiped away a drop of sweat from his brow, taking some of his eyeshadow along with it. His parents did not like when he wore makeup, but that was the point. To be as subtly subversive as possible. He deliberately smudged it onto his shirt. 
Aaron glanced out the window. He thought he had seen a bird at the corner of his eye, and primed himself for another song. He played for about half an hour, although it seemed much, much longer to him. He was just killing time today, and although his posture was still impeccable, he betrayed his impatience with the childlike swing of his legs. As he kicked, he felt his shoe collide with something small and furry and lithe. Trixie had woven herself under the piano and Aaron had kicked her. Not hard, it was more of a nudge, but he still felt bad about it. He scooped her up and kissed her on the forehead. She meowed and blinked slowly at him. Crisis averted. Well, one of the crises, at least. Aaron's parents were still unaware of the cat. They assumed Trixie was a friend from school. Aaron conveniently did not mention that they were wrong. They had almost discovered her last Tuesday, when she had knocked over a shaker of salt, but she managed to slink away in the shadows while Theodore and Roberta fussed over the spilled grains. He bet Agatha's parents weren't this interesting. He bet other kids his age had parents that didn't obsess over every excruciating superstition. But he didn't ask, because how embarrassing it would be to tell them, right? Agatha. Aaron contemplated that he hadn't seen her in a while, not since her parents had started homeschooling her. But that didn't seem right. She would have just come over in person. Maybe she had just gotten grounded. He hoped she had just gotten grounded. Her parents never really liked him, he could tell. They were probably the kind of monsters to lock Agatha in a dungeon to prevent her from hanging out with him. He hoped she would come back soon. He had wanted to give her a stick and bow tattoo and give himself one to match. It would have been her birthday present. But her birthday had come and gone and his best friend was nowhere to be found. He hoped she hadn't gotten into too much trouble after the peanut incident. His thoughts were rerouted with a distant meow. Aaron had found Trixie when she arrived at the door on a dark and stormy night. His parents had been watching a movie in the other room, which was good because they would have never let Trixie stay, her being a black cat and all. Trixie had been a small, mewling mess of soaked black fur. Poor thing. Probably chewed up by a fox, even though they don't tend to eat things that are alive. He had hushed her and tucked her into a nest of his scrunched-up hoodies and fluffy pajama pants. She needed them more. His parents did not question his sudden appetite for milk. They rarely came into his room anymore, anyway. The only challenge was keeping Trixie contained. For example, he didn't realize she had strayed from his side of the piano in the mezzanine. No problem. All he would have to do was find her before his parents got home. He had plenty of time. Oh dear. Aaron jumped, knowing his mother would be inside any second now. He just had to find Trixie before she did. He tumbled downstairs into the kitchen, frantically ps-ps-sing as he went. He heard the front door open. Aaron, honey, I'm home. I got out of work early. Did you want to get out of the house anytime soon? See a movie? Go to a restaurant? We could invite CJ. Just a sec, Mom. I just need to take care of something real quick. Another meow from above this time. Trixie was on the top shelf. He would need the stepladder. He flung open the closet and grabbed it, propping it up and beginning to climb. He had almost reached Trixie when his mother entered the kitchen. She froze, agape. Aaron, what are you doing? Oh no. Had she finally found out? Aaron was about to protest when Roberta continued. You forgot to put up the ropes around the ladder. Here, let me get them for you. Aaron exhaled, his heart beating faster than a caffeinated hummingbird. While her back was turned, he fumbled for the cat and helplessly watched her jump off the shelf and trot back to his room. Fuming, 
He followed her up to lock the door. No more escaping. He managed to keep the cat out of Roberta's side long enough for her to go to the bakery. He was about to let her out when he heard another doorbell. Theodore had returned from his errands and needed help opening the door, his hands full of bags. After they had both put away the groceries, Theodore went into the living room. Aaron, have you seen my book? he called. Aaron rolled his eyes and followed him inside. What book? The one I was just reading. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, Aaron paused. I didn't take it. Where could it have gone? I don't know, Aaron said. Theodore looked at him. Aaron? Look, I really don't know. I've been playing piano all afternoon. What's this? He held up a long black whisker. That's a hair. It's not yours, Aaron. Well, maybe it's yours then, or Mom's. Have you been hanging out with anyone? How's CJ? Have you seen them lately? Aaron blushed. No, that's not theirs. They got a haircut. Then whose hair is it? Um, Trixie. From school? She lives on Little Street. She doesn't like to be perceived unless the time is right. The time isn't right? And the door opened. Roberta entered, flushed from her evening walk. She set a box of assorted pastries from the bakery onto the counter. Theodore, she shakily announced. There's a black cat in the garden. An icy tendril of terror shot down Aaron's spine. He looked out, and sure enough there was Trixie, chittering among the birds and several other creatures. Well, you know Walter, don't you? When Aaron was younger, before he moved to Little Street, he was indifferent about birds. He might have even liked them, but it seemed so long ago. He didn't actively dislike them now, but they did make him uneasy. Aaron did not like how they seemed to look at him. It was probably just a trick of the light, he thought. It was always a trick of the light with him. He liked to rationalize things. He did not like to dwell on the hidden malevolent meanings of meaningless rituals. To Aaron, a broken mirror was just a broken mirror. The only unlucky thing about a broken mirror was the possibility that you could get glass shards in your hands. But that didn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, right? Aaron was often too scared to think about the grand scheme of things, so he would shut it out and play piano instead. But he couldn't right now. Right now the thing he had been scared of for the past month had come to pass. Theodore, get the broom and chase it away. We don't want this omen to bother the neighbours. That's ridiculous, Aaron scoffed. Trixie is just a cat. The parents stiffened. This is Trixie? Aaron kicked himself. Yeah, that's my cat. And she's been living here for over a month without any problems or omens or stupid superstitions, so what's the big deal? They stood in silence for an excruciatingly long minute. Finally, Roberta muttered that she was going to make dinner. Theodore followed her into the kitchen to help and Aaron went into the garden to retrieve his cat. Aaron found dinner more flavorful than usual. His steak was rare, almost bloody, just the way he liked it. It tasted like an apology, but not the kind he could accept. After dinner, Roberta took out the box from the bakery. She froze. She had forgotten to ask for twelve. They had given her a baker's dozen because she had forgotten to explicitly ask for not thirteen of them. There are thirteen pastries in the box. She quickly took one out with a furtive glance. She hoped nobody else had seen the thirteenth. 
She wanted to protect them. After all, that was her job as a spouse and a parent, wasn't it? To protect, even if it stifled their growth? No matter. She let Aaron choose first, then Theodore, then herself, to avoid suspicion. She wrapped the thirteenth pastry in a napkin and hid it under the table. Roberta fidgeted with a napkin, unsure. Would it really make a difference if there were thirteen rather than twelve? Was she really overreacting? They didn't even have mirrors in their house for fear they would break. Aaron, with the most derision he could muster, had once scoffed, Seriously? What are you, a vampire? Can't you be rational for once? She put the pastry onto the table and retreated to her room. The next day was tense. Aaron managed to stay out of sight all day. Dinner was leftovers. The steak clunked like anxiety in the pit of his stomach. Aaron sighed. He knew it would have to be now. Hey, uh, Mom? Dad? I'll come get you in a minute. He pushed a chair into the table a bit too vigorously, spilling the salt shaker. Roberta had wanted to buy a new salt shaker, but had forgotten again. How fallible. With his parents packing up the salt like a couple of chickens who were also control freaks, Aaron slipped out of the room. Aaron looked over the obstacle course he had managed to cobble together. He had never seen this many mirrors in one place before. He hoped he would be able to return all of them to his schoolmates. It would be unfortunate if one broke, not for luck reasons, but because he didn't want to have to replace it. But even if one did break, it wouldn't cause bad luck anyway. That was what he was trying to prove. He had a mission, and he was going to stick to it, no matter what befell on him. Aaron turned to see his parents, who had followed him out of the dining room. I'm going to show you what I've built inside the house. As they protested, their horrified reflections confronting them. Aaron put up a finger. I'm almost an adult. You don't need to coddle me anymore. I can do things by myself. You two need to get over yourselves, because what you think I need isn't actually what I need, okay? Silently, his parents followed him down the hall. They shrank from the shining mirrors Aaron had arranged in a labyrinthine pattern. For a second, Aaron would have thought it would be amusing if his parents hadn't shown up in the mirrors, but they did. They were woefully human. Probably as human as you. Anyway, Theodore lamented his perfect horseshoes, and Roberta her doormat covered in spilled seeds, but the party of three pressed on, snaking through the house. They passed the shoes on the coffee table. Roberta's work shoes, Theodore's bunny slippers, and Aaron's goth platform boots crowded onto it. Roberta stifled a small shriek when they got further down the hallway. Ladders. Lots of ladders. Theodore froze like a deer having an existential crisis while stuck in a tar pit. Aaron gently nudged him. Theodore, a man who had never dared to leave his comfort zone, stepped under the ladder. He let out a shaky breath. Then he advanced under another ladder, and another. Roberta followed suit. A few ladders later, something had shifted. Aaron had never seen his parents this at ease before, even when they pretended to show it. But the proof was in their relaxed postures and unclenched jaws. He could have sworn he saw them smile, but that might have been a trick of the light. Or it might have been real. Aaron heard a creak and looked up. And a door that should not, could not, have been up on the mezzanine pushed open against the piano's spindly legs, which broke and sent it crashing through the mezzanine rail like water gushing through a burst dam. 
The piano was suspended in the air, a picture-perfect moment of still tension. Roberta and Theodore were oblivious. What a dangerous thing to be on Little Street. And Aaron was the only resident watching. Luckily, he shoved his parents out of the way. But real life is never as neat as superstition. That would be too convenient. The piano slammed down onto his right hand with a sickening crash. It echoed throughout the room discordantly. A small gasp escaped his lips as he collapsed to the floor, keys strewn about like petals. It took him more than a few weeks to recover. The piano had turned his bones to dust or something. He didn't care about the specifics. Why would he? His right hand would never be the same. He wouldn't be able to play piano without severely hurting it. And without piano, who is Aaron? Who is this sad husk of a... Well, he would have to find something else to do now, wouldn't he? As he was sulking in his bedroom, something he was inclined to do after his injury, he heard a small knock at the door. Probably Dad with one of his inspirational whatevers. Aaron did not want to talk to anyone. He wanted to brood in silence for the rest of eternity. The knock came again, more insistent this time. Aaron sighed, knowing he wouldn't be able to get out of this one, lifted Trixie off his lap, and ambled to the door. No one was there. Aaron peered down at the dusty book on his floor. He picked it up. It was the autobiography of Tim Willowdend, the one-handed composer and pianist. His parents had probably gotten him the book to rub it in. Aaron felt tears well up in his eyes. He was going to cry out his mascara again. Aaron threw the book across the room. Something fell out. A scrap of paper. His curiosity won against his resentment, and he picked it up. It was covered in words that had been harshly scribbled out in an illegible hatching of ink. It was only a small patch where the paper was left somewhat unmarred with just enough room for one line. Hey, Dracula, sorry I can't come over. Only one person ever called him Dracula, and she'd never had much of a way with words. They'd had a running joke that Aaron was secretly a vampire, since he exclusively wore back, had sharp teeth, lived in a house with no mirrors, and played spooky piano music all day. Then Agatha had to go home for dinner, and that was the last time he saw her. Aaron clutched the book to his chest, Trixie curling up on him as he drifted to sleep. There is no house 13 and 1 9th on Little Street. Aaron painted over the fraction on the mailbox this morning, and this time his parents kept it covered up. After all, it is legally called House 13 now. And the family within has grown by one. They installed a cat flap for the newest member. Where the horseshoe once hung, there is now a scratching post, and the rope barriers have been repurposed into cat toys. But her favourite toy is the salt shaker, and while Theodore still jumps when salt is spilled, he lets her bat it around. Roberta hikes on craggier terrain, except in the cracks and crevices. She now asks for a baker's dozen at the Sweet Tooth Bakery, and Aaron plays piano. He is self-taught, developing a new technique. Maybe he'll duet with CJ someday. Trixie nestles into his lap, and for the first time he can pet her while he plays. Nothing is out of place here on Little Street. Somewhere on Little Street, 
a wandering door with a plaque on the front, and no business being there, close it. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's house was written by Alex Schwartz and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and art by Cloudy Appleart. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and who knows, eventually God might finally listen to us. Today's cognitive phenomenon is deja vu. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.